Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. My guests this week are two awesome cannabis researchers, Paul Coxon and Patrick Vesey. Paul has been on the podcast before on episode 59, talking about his paper on cannabis deficiencies. Be sure to check out that episode if you haven't already. Just click on the Learn tab, then Podcast. I also recently had them on together to talk about their phosphorus research, and they are back this week to talk about magnesium. Paul has been working in the hemp world as a researcher since 2018 and in plant science research since 2016. He has a background in horticulture, agroecology, and floriculture from his time at NC State. Currently, he is pursuing his PhD at the University of Kentucky working with industrial hemp. Paul's primary research focuses on rhizosphere management and brings strengths in plant mineral fertility, plant hormones and growth regulators, substrate research, general diagnostics, and greenhouse and growth chamber expertise. In addition to a strong greenhouse background, Paul is also literate in field-level agronomic processes. Paul's passion is for mentorship and sharing the research process with undergraduate students. When not doing research, Paul and his dog Groot can be found hiking in local, state, and national parks. Patrick Vesey has been working in the hemp world as a researcher since 2019 and as a plant science researcher since 2018. He has a background in horticulture and floriculture from his time as an undergraduate researcher at NC State. Currently, he is pursuing his Master's of Science at North Carolina State and is focusing on greenhouse substrates for cannabis and other floriculture crops. Patrick's primary research focuses on plant mineral fertility, substrate research, and general diagnostics. Was super excited to talk to them about some of their latest published research on cannabis and hemp. Now on to the show. All right, hey guys, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having us. Tell me again, I know you guys have been on the show multiple times now, but uh, can you just give a quick bio, uh, each of you, and what you're currently up to, and uh, then we'll dive into these papers. Uh, Paul, you want to start us off? (laughs) Sure, yeah. Um, I'm Paul Coxon. Um, I'm currently a PhD student at University of Kentucky. Um, I got involved pretty early on with Dr. Brian Whipker at NC State um, doing hemp research, cannabis research. Um, And ever since then, it's kind of been a a fun, wild ride of just exploring uh, this avenue and that avenue. Um, But most of our work uh, coming out of there um, that Patrick, myself, and Dr. Whipker did was uh, related to uh, fertility and mineral nutrition um, of cannabis. So, um, but currently I'm at University of Kentucky and we're exploring uh, germination and establishment um, with some industrial hemp. Uh, so a little bit more of the grain and fiber side. And, and you, Patrick? Yeah, and I'm Patrick Vesey. I'm a first year master's student at NC State working under Dr. Brian Whipker and worked under Paul as an undergrad. Uh, Most of my research is focused on mineral fertility of different crops, including cannabis. Now I'm moving a little bit more into the substrate realm of uh, CBD, hemp, and other crops as well. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you guys coming on the show. And the the main purpose of the show today was to talk about uh, this paper that you were both authors on that uh, 
that Patrick did a lot of the research on here. It's entitled Magnesium's Impact on Cannabis Sativa. Is it B-A-O-X? Is that the name of the cultivar? Or how do you pronounce that? Uh, Bayox. Bayox, okay. And Suver Hayes Growth and Cannabinoid Production. Awesome. Uh, but before we dive into that paper, uh, there was a question. Uh, I got an email from a listener that I thought was interesting, and I kind of wanted to talk to you guys about it and just kind of expound on that. So the the email, the, the gist of the email was, why don't researchers partner with farmers or growers that, that know how to grow plants to get you know really healthy, happy plants for these trials? Um, and I think this was in relation, Paul, to one of the papers you did and the plants in the paper not looking quite so hot. So can you kind of explain um, just a little bit more around that process and, and, and yeah, just, yeah, I'll just leave it with that and take it, take it away. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, first off, I'm actually really excited that people are commenting and, uh, you know, challenging and, and giving feedback because it's, it's important in this industry that we're all communicating together and sometimes that means um, asking those hard questions or expressing some uh, frustration in, in constructive ways but um, I guess I'll, I'll kind of answer that twofold. The first part is um, actually the very first paper that we did on um, the survey with Hunter Landis. Um, we partnered with a local grower. Um, that was where we started uh, with our foundation. So. Um, given that Dr. Brian Whipker has an extension appointment, we really do value and try and partner with growers um, whenever possible. But the challenge sometimes is, um, especially with larger grants, you're often required to partner with growers. Um, but this industry, at least um, on the scientific side, is so new and we're still breaking into it that a lot of those federal funding and larger grants um, are just now starting to roll out. And so most of us were having to do solo work um, trying to kind of figure some stuff out on a, a smaller scale, which sometimes makes it difficult to involve growers. Um, but definitely moving forward, um, we're all in this together and we only get better together. So uh, yeah, definitely partnerships are the way to go. Because, um, you know, we're scientists, we're really good at science, but sometimes, you know, we're still learning. Well, also, I, I want to well. touch on the fact that the point of research is not just for research itself, but actually to further knowledge for growers and farmers in the agricultural sector so that you know we can grow better plants so we can better understand that process so you're not doing science in a vacuum but you're doing it hopefully with the goal of impacting growers yeah and that's a really good point um i always laugh because brian uh dr whipker he has a saying um he does a lot of nutrient deficiency work and he always says his motto is we kill plants so you don't have to and, uh, you know, I think sometimes, you know, we as scientists, we're, we're almost looking to fail or we're looking for that failure point because we're trying to fail and figure out, you know, what's wrong so that we can inform the, the growers in the industry on what not to do. Um, and the other thing is just a little bit about the, the scientific process itself. Um, you know, it, when you're designing an experiment, you have a very specific question in mind. And so you're kind of streamlining all of your variables and you're trying to eliminate anything that can impact that question so that you get kind of a pure answer at the end. And so if something goes wrong in the middle of an experiment, sometimes you can't fix it because if you do try and fix it, you don't know if maybe what you did to try and fix and autocorrect your trajectory impacted the results or if it was truly your experiment. And so, you know, early on when we were still kind of trying to dial in with the phosphorus work, 
Um, our plants didn't look too hot, but we knew that we couldn't correct that because we were very specifically trying to study phosphorus. And uh, when we came to this next round of experiments that Patrick headed up with the magnesium work, um, we, we definitely um, changed a few things um, here and there, especially with the fertility regime. Um, and it really showed through in this experiment that we also learned from our mistake. Yes. Yeah, so, so once you have your methodology in place you, yeah, and, and your hypothesis, you really can't make a lot of changes at that point. You're kind of committed. Is that essentially what you're saying? Oh, and, and Patrick, you had something you wanted to add to that? Yeah, so we did experience some magnesium problems in Paul's study, but kind of looking at that, we saw the problem, and while we couldn't correct it for that, that's kind of what springboarded us into this next project, is that all of our work kind of built off what we had done and the problems we had seen. So even though once we were committed to only playing around with the phosphorus rate in that first experiment, we adjusted and it actually sprung board us into this completely other direction for a new experiment to look at magnesium. Um, so while problems do occur early on, as we've gone through this line of experiments, the plants have looked better because we've made these mi minor changes all the way along. And we kind of document that with our research. That makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate you guys explaining that. And, uh, it, it is great to hear that research is partnering with growers and farmers, and that's the main purpose of it. Uh, one other aspect to that, though, too, as um, as someone who works with a, a number of cannabis facilities, uh, they're not really set up to do research in a lot of ways because you can't set up a protocol that you know won't give you the highest economic uh, gain. So you can't you can't set up an experiment where you know you're going to lose some plants or your plants are going to yield lower because at the end of the day your bottom line is what's keeping you in business. So that's where you know having another location working with researchers and giving input um, is really important because you just can't do it in a working facility. Um, so just want to add that to that. But um, let's let's just dive into this this magnesium paper, um, Patrick. Uh, do you want to go ahead and just uh, explain a little bit of what the uh, goals of the paper were and, and, you know, start taking us through it? Yeah. So this magnesium paper really started off as a problem that we were seeing with our plants and a lot of other growers in the southeast. So magnesium, uh, you can get a lot of it from your water supply if you're on a well where uh, your groundwater contains a lot of magnesium. This is pretty common in the upper Midwest where uh, a lot of their parent materials contain the magnesium, so it winds up in their water. However, here in the southeast, especially in North and South Carolina, uh, we were seeing a lot of magnesium problems because our water really doesn't contain any. So like with Paul's research, uh, when we're mixing our fertilizers, if you use uh, triple tin, it doesn't contain magnesium and sulfur. Uh, so moving along into that, we'd, we saw a lot of growers have this magnesium deficiency going on, especially late in the bud set. So we wanted to determine if we can find that magnesium fertility rate that growers can target in order to not have that magnesium deficiency, especially later in the production cycle. So moving along with that, we set up this experiment where we looked at six different magnesium fertility rates of uh, zero, let's see, 0, 12 and a half, 25, 50, 75, and 100 part per million magnesium. 
and we held them constant throughout the entire experiment and we looked at the uptake and the plant growth at three different stages a vegetative stage pre-flower where we're only a couple weeks in a bud set and then at the end of flowering of so 12 weeks of total growth or eight weeks of reproductive and just uh, looked at you know how much magnesium was the plant taking up and what the impacts on the growth and cannabinoids were so that was kind of the baseline for the study and why we did it now you you guys what was your um what was your media for this because i when i think of magnesium i typically see it coming in a lot with compost um so it's part of my media already in in many cases um, I tend to never have to add magnesium, um, even though it's not in my water, just because we get it when we mix soils. But if you're growing, you know, purely using mineral salts, I could see where that could be a little more challenging. Um, what were you guys doing in this case? So for this one, we utilized a 70-30 peat perlite uh, volume to volume substrate. So, and we custom blended that. So we know it didn't have a pre-plant charge. So this rate that we're sort of recommending as your baseline or cornerstone to modify from there, um, this is with nothing coming in in the soil, as well as everything is supplied through liquid feed. Um, so like you're saying, a lot of it can come in with your substrate, your water, or many other things. Here's just what we were looking to recommend is what should your cornerstone be to kind of uh, look at to avoid the deficiency, and then. Mm -hmm. You know, if it is coming in a lot in your substrate or in your water, you can kind of take that away um, from the rate. So, uh, and, and your decision to keep magnesium the same throughout the cycle in terms of how much you were feeding, uh, what went into that sort of sort of that conversation? Yeah. So, looking to keep it constant versus altering it, it's mainly that magnesium's a mobile element. So if the plant needs it, it'll be able to translocate it. So we wanted to see just by giving it a constant feed, you know, will the plant take it from the lower leaves whenever uh, it's not in reproductive and move it to the uh, new and developing foliage or into the buds when it's developing? We didn't really want to alter it. We wanted to kind of see if you held it exactly constant throughout how the plant's uh, new sinks and sources were really gonna influence how much was needed okay now before we go into the results can you uh could one of you guys give me a little overview on magnesium i feel like maybe we should <laughs> we should have backed up and started there uh in terms of how how it works in the plant and what a deficiency may look like um, relative to other nutrients and if there's any antagonistic uh, relationships with other nutrients like um, the, on the molders chart for example So magnesium deficiency, which we have a pretty good photo of um, in the article, it initially will appear on that lower one-third of the plant, the oldest leaves. And then it'll start as this intervenal uh, uh, chlorosis, and it starts right in the center of the leaf and kind of spreads outward to the edge of the leaflet. And then as the... Uh, deficiency becomes more severe, it spreads into that middle portion of the plant, and then we saw in many severe cases it can be throughout the entire plant. Um, now once that intervenal chlorosis has really developed, 
we begin to start to see necrosis forming and then leaves uh, dying and falling from the plant. So it is also mobile in the plant. So once it starts in that lower one third of the plant, the plant's actually taking the, new, the magnesium that was in those lower leaves and translocating it to the upper portions of the plant to meet the new developing needs of the plant. So especially when we put that plant to flower and reproductive, it's going to take all those nutrients that are stored in the bottom and it's going to shift them up to the buds. So it's kind of essentially a magnesium piggy bank in that lower one third of the plant where it's going to kind of hold it. And then once it's needed for that bud production, it's going to move it to the upper portion. Um, and that's kind of one thing we wanted to look at is how much is needed to not see that translocation um, and keep it constant throughout. Um, but just because your lower leaves are deficient, that doesn't mean your upper leaves are deficient because it's moving it throughout. So that's why it will initially appear first in the lower area. And then in terms of antagon antagonistic effects with other elements, magnesium is antagonized by uh, potassium and calcium. However, it's synergistic or we see an increase in uptake when uh, phosphorus is high or nitrogen. So uh, really looking at your N and P to see if we really increase that nitrogen rate or you really increase that phosphorus rate, you will see an increase in that magnesium uptake. Um, so for what we looked at here, we had 150 part per million N uh, constant feed. So if we did increase this uh, to you know, 250, 300 part per million N, like we have seen some growers do, you may need to alter the rate that we do provide uh, because when you increase those two elements, you're going to see an increase in magnesium uptake as well. Yeah, and I'll just jump in here real quick and, and uh, provide a few comments. So um, the, the figures that we have in this paper um, that Patrick were referring to, that's figure three and figure four um, for kind of the initial um, deficiency stages for magnesium and then kind of the advanced with figure four. Um, and another figure I'd like to highlight is figure six, um, where we're looking at 25 part per million magnesium. Um, so it's a composite photo with both Mayox and Severe Haze um, showing kind of that, uh, the reallocation uh, that Patrick was just talking about. Um, and essentially it's pulling it out of those older leaves and, and funneling it into the new reproductive sink. Um, but uh, as Patrick said, um, phosphorus, um, magnesium is synergistic with phosphorus. And if you actually look at the fertility rates that we utilize, um, we had uh, 30 parts per million phosphorus. And if you'll kind of cast your mind back to the, the previous episode that we had where, you know, we were kind of recommending, you know, start at around the 15 uh, parts per million rate, um, given we were going so high with the magnesium, um, and given that initially in the phosphorus study, um, we saw some magnesium deficiency, that's kind of what sparked the, the interest that Patrick had in the study. So we increased that phosphorus because of the synergism with the magnesium, knowing that we would probably have an effect there. Um, but as far as the importance of magnesium um, in plants, so in the chlorophyll molecule, it kind of uh, sits in, in the middle of this ring um, and it's important in uh, chlorophyll production and chlorophyll health. Um, so it's directly correlated to um, photosynthetic health. Um, and we all know that you know, the healthier the photosynthetic machinery, 
the more photosynthates and, and the healthier your plant will be and the more resources um, it will have to funnel into those buds or those you know seeds um, come the induction of the critical photo period so uh, magnesium is definitely extremely important um, element um, given its its role in photosynthesis that's that's great I really appreciate you guys explaining that um, can we dive in now to sort of what your your findings were on this and I'll I'll link to this paper um, and these these uh, diagrams um, or figures on the on the podcast page itself so people can go back and look at these as well yeah so our findings uh, for this study was we noticed that it was slightly different for both cultivars so uh, first Bayox, we didn't see some of the uh, magnesium deficiency at some of the same rates that we did for uh, Savier Hayes. So we actually saw more of an impact on uh, Savier Hayes plants compared to Bayox when we had that low magnesium fertility. Uh, Savier Hayes is a bit more of a bushy grower and a lot more aggressive grower than Bayox. So what we did notice is that there's a big cultivar dependency here. So when we, we, we're gonna make this rate recommendation of 50 to 75 part per million mg. However, one of our big things that we do wanna highlight as a takeaway is that this can kind of serve as a cornerstone for a grower. However, it is not exactly the recipe for a grower. So while we can say it's in this range, one of the big things I do wanna highlight uh, before getting too deep into this is that this will vary based upon what cultivar you're looking at. If you have a very aggressive grower, you may need to look at a slightly higher rate compared to a, a smaller plant or if you're keeping them smaller. And uh, Additionally, um, magnesium had a negative impact on plant growth at the lowest two rates of 0 and 12.5 part per million. And that's when we're seeing the plant being deficient in the magnesium uptake. Uh, in terms of once we start to move up the ladder, 25 to 50, it was also very dependent upon what stage in growth we were at. At four weeks of growth, 25 and 50 for Bayox were fairly similar. However, as we begin to move into um, the later weeks, we begin to see that difference grow uh, much more in terms of overall plant growth metrics. So later into the production cycle and that plant needed more magnesium, it really turned into 50 to 75 produce uh, better growing plants and more yield. Another thing to really highlight is that we looked at this uh, range of rates of six of them. Now at the lower rates of zero to 12 and a half, we completely expected to see a decrease in plant growth. But one of the other things I want to highlight is when we go to the far end of things. So if you supply a plant with too many nutrients, you will actually decrease your plant's growth. And here we really saw that for uh, both cultivars. Starting even initially at eight weeks of plant growth for Bayox, plants that received 100 part per million phosphorus showed significantly less growth compared to those that received 50 to 75. And you, we saw the same yield as plants that received zero part per million 
uh, magnesium. So it's really finding that key balance for a grower. You don't want to oversupply your plants with magnesium, but you definitely don't want to undersupply them as well. So that's kind of where we get these rates as the cornerstone of 50 to 75 part million uh, mg. And really uh, looking at um, the final growth stage, we saw that there wasn't a, a real big difference in bud weight overall. So it's um, for Bayox, there was no differences at all. And when we look at magnesium, plants that received zero or 100 part per million mg exhibited significantly less bud weight overall compared to plants that were in that 50 to 75 part per million mg. So your magnesium rate can directly impact your yield. And even if you're not seeing uh, magnesium deficiency, uh, we, you will see a decrease in uh, bud production because of a uh, over accumulation of magnesium in your plant. So that's kind of the really big things we want to highlight from the plant growth perspective. Now, one of the main ways that a grower can determine uh, magnesium uh, concentration in a plant is through leaf tissue analysis. And one of the things we saw is that as you begin to uh, give the plant more and more magnesium, it's definitely going to take that magnesium up, looking at all of the different nutrient analysis that we did on both cultivars. And both cultivars uptook magnesium in a linear fashion. So the more you gave it, the more it took up. Now granted, we also saw that decrease in bud production. So kind of one of the key things to highlight is that a greater magnesium concentration does not mean uh, better, healthier plants. We're kind of looking at a sweet spot here of about 1.15 to 1.3 per, or, uh, percent magnesium in the leaves uh, was kind of that 50 to 75 part per million what it turns into concentration in the plant. So we didn't see an actual plateau. Uh, that linear increase continued all the way up to 100 ppm and G and maybe if we increase the rate further you know up to 150 200 part per million magnesium we may see an actual plateau occur where the plant just won't take any more up. However, uh, up to 100 ppm and G, which is not hard to obtain, we did see an overall plateau, or we did not see a plateau in uptake, but we see a plateau in growth. So looking at those, uh, if you do conduct nutrient analysis, making sure you look at those values and understand that more is not better is a key thing to kind of take away from this piece of work. I could add something real quick to that. Um, just one quick clarification. Um, for Bayox, um, regardless of the magnesium concentration, we didn't see uh, much differences in the bud weight. Um, but for severe haze, we did. Um, and those differences were seen at the 50 parts per million rate um, compared to the zero. Um, but then once we got up to those higher concentrations, like Patrick said, um, we did see a decrease in that total bud weight. Um, so again, just kind of to uh, kind of, I guess, uh, parrot something that Patrick said earlier, it really, when, when looking at this research and trying to figure out what, what does this mean for my operation, what does this mean for me, um, recognizing that there will be 
cultivar to cultivar, variety to variety differences that you're seeing. And so using this as kind of a starting uh, point and a, and a guideline to conduct your own research in your own facility, because a lot of you know other abiotic factors, um, what type of lights you're using, how often you're irrigating, um, your vapor pressure deficit will impact you know how those plants are taking up and utilizing the nutrients as well. Um, so just wanted to you know uh, reiterate what Patrick had said. Yeah, there. just so I understand it too you said that uh with bayox you didn't see a difference in bud weight but then when you got to the higher higher concentrations you did so did you or did you not see difference in in overall yield i guess or are you talking about the actual bud size and weight just comparing a but like a single bud but that was my confusion in that Yeah, yeah. So um, if you look at table 10 and table 11 um, from the paper, you can see the total bud weight um, there. Um, so we took a subsample composite, if that's if I'm remembering correctly, Patrick, or did you? Uh, this is plant? all of the buds on the plant. And looking at uh, table okay. 10, which is Bayox, for any of the examined magnesium fertility rates, we don't see a difference. However, Savier Hayes. Um, we do see a difference between that 50, or we see a decrease in total bud weight produced by those that were zero uh, part per million mg and 50, and then we also see a decrease on the other end of the spectrum. So plants that received 100 part per million mg produce significantly less total bud weight compared to those that received 50. Um, so that really ties in that uh, cultivar difference between uh, cultivars will react different, differently uh, based upon the magnesium fertility rate. So in some, you may see a significant decrease in bud production. In others, you may not. So, so yeah. to kind of summarize, Tad, in one cultivar, we saw no differences regardless of which magnesium rate we were seeing in total bud weight. So no correlation between bud weight and magnesium. However, in the other cultivar, we saw that we had lower bud weights at those lower concentrations, and it increased up to that 50 parts per million magnesium. And then it then decreased when we got to that uh, 100 to be less. Okay, so the big takeaway is that genetics can play a huge role in magnesium uptake because we have such diversity in genetics and and what people are growing. Perfect. Um, some of the other, I guess, big points that you would you would highlight um, are. Uh, sorry, I have to go back now and recollect my thoughts. Um, actually, I'm going to come back to that. So the first, the thing I want to touch on was lighting because you mentioned lighting. Um, you were growing in a greenhouse in this case, right? And you mentioned magnesium's role in photosynthetic. Um, activity do you think if you had pushed uh your you know your pbfd levels higher or more consistently across um like like say with an indoor indoor facility you know at 1200 ppfd or or somewhere around there you would have seen increased magnesium well i guess you you couldn't see increased magnesium uptake do you think you would have seen um you know, deficiencies or maybe have needed more magnesium um, 
in those instances relative to what you actually saw in, in this study? I think by pushing the plant by increasing, you know, PPFD to once you're pushing that plant to get bigger, faster, comparatively to uh, we were growing with natural DLI with night interruption. And this started off in uh, early spring and transitioned into later in the spring, closer to uh, mid-April. So we weren't in, you know, what we'd consider the maximum uh, PPFD or DLI for the year. So by adding more lights and other things, and you're really pushing that plant, pushing the photosynthesis, increasing mass flow of other nutrients, I think you would have needed a slightly increased magnesium fertility rate to help compensate for that plant growth that, that you're really pushing. Mm -hmm. um, additionally, when you're really, if you're increasing the photosynthesis and transpiration and everything else, magnesium is going to get drawn up more because the plant's utilizing more water. So you could potentially need to increase uh, your magnesium fertility rate as well to compensate for that increase in plant growth. Um, or vice versa, if you're going to try and slow the plants down and not need to irrigate nearly as much between um, intervals, then you could potentially lower this magnesium fertility rate as well. Uh, but definitely lighting, if you're going to push the plants, potentially looking at uh, tinkering with this cornerstone that we're kind of providing, you may need to up uh, increase it depending upon um, your setup as well. Great. And did you see, um, did you see can't, uh, calcium or potassium deficiencies as you increase magnesium up to that um, 100 ppm level on visually with the plant or with tissue analysis? Um, neither visually nor, uh, so Paul did the original cornerstone that y'all highlighted of nutrient values for cannabis deficiencies. Mm-hmm. And we were only playing around with um, about 100 part per million mg. So we really didn't see that much of a difference compared to um, our 150 part per million in modified Hogan solution. I think if we really would have started to increase um, the magnesium, you know, 150, 200, we could have started to see a little bit more of that interaction. Um, you do slightly see some of that interaction playing out in um, Savier Hayes, but we don't see nearly two deficient levels. Um, but there is just a little bit of that interaction occurring where you see, as we go up in magnesium, you see slightly lower uh, calcium levels in some of them. Okay, okay. So uh, the high level things, just getting back to that, are that it's really important to have sufficiency in magnesium, but it's uh, you can't, you can't have a luxury amount. It has antagonistic effects. So there is a yeah. limit to how much magnesium you want in your media or being uptaken by the plant. Um, it's going to be affected by all your abiotic conditions, your environment, watering habits, all of those things. It's a mobile nutrient and um, genetics plays a big role. Are there any other high level things that I missed in kind of recapping some of this and 50 to 75 ppm was the sweet spot in this study for these genetics uh, based off what you saw. Uh, yeah, um, 
that's all correct. The other high-level thing that uh, we kind of wanted to point out is we didn't see uh, uh, any influence on cannabinoids. Mm. Um, okay. So from our current understanding is at these levels, we weren't seeing that interaction with the cannabinoid production pathway. Um, you know, potentially if you are running a different system or, or running different genetics as well, you may start to see a difference. Um, however, we did not see a difference based upon the magnesium rate for our setup. Now, as go ahead, Paul. I'll, I'll kind of jump in here. Um, so if you look at tables 14 and 15 from the paper, um, it kind of highlights what Patrick was saying here. And uh, what we essentially did is we kind of reiterated this point that genetics plays a huge part because you can see that, you know, while magnesium didn't necessarily impact the cannabinoids, um, it, we did have quite stark differences um, between the two cultivars and the type of um, cannabinoids that they were producing um, across the acidic pools as well as the decarboxylated pools. So again, just kind of driving home the point that, you know, this is a starting point and based on your genetics and your environment, you know, you can kind of use this as a guiding star, but you'll have to make some fine-tune adjustments and find out what works for you and your operation. So, Yeah, so as someone who works with what people are calling living soil these days, which so essentially soilless media with compost, um, organic inputs, um, where the uh, nutrients or fertilizer that we're adding is not immediately available to the plant, like it, like it is in in the in in this study that you're running, um, I tend to aim for lower levels of magnesium um, on my soil tests because I know that it can uh, tighten the soil. It raises your pH uh, pretty dramatically relative to other cations, and um, it, it's harder to flush out relative to some of the other cations. So for me, I aim low and then. Um, as an organic grower, I use magnesium sulfate, Epsom salt as a way of, of sort of feeding magnesium as needed. But typically I'll wait until I get a, you know, some sort of visual uh, clue of a deficiency. But one thing that your research is showing and correct me on anything I've said so far, if, if, if I, if I misspeak in your eyes, um, you're saying that potentially just by waiting for that visual deficiency on magnesium, I may be possibly impacting overall plant health or yield. Is that, cor is that correct? Because you found differences based off of um, doing your leaf tissue analysis that showed essentially a decrease in yield um, prior to visual plant deficiency. Is that, is that a fair assumption? Yeah. Yes, um, all that you're saying with in a living soil system, magnesium uh, can be very problematic, both with pH, locking up the soil and everything else. Um, but you're also kind of holding it there um, to kind of, it's already incorporated into your soil. Um, from what we're kind of viewing is we did see decreases when we didn't add any supplement because we did a constant feed um, so I can't answer that if 
you're making an adjustment as you see a visual deficiency. If you're uh, negating the deficiency with your supplement of Epsom salt, um, we're kind of only saying that if you see the deficiency and you don't supplement, uh, you will see a decrease for the two cultivars we looked at. But okay. we can't necessarily make a statement if if you see the deficiency and you make an adjustment, the leaves will still look deficient, but that new growth is likely going to take it up. So I assume you're negating it to a certain point, but I can't necessarily say that you are going to see that deficiency if you add later. Because it's a mobile nutrient, those lower yeah. leaves are potentially nutrient sinks at that point, um, especially in, 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 the, a, in an indoor facility where they're getting a lot less light. Um, so you're saying it may it, not be as impactful. Yeah, the, the plant's not going to yeah. go back and, and prioritize okay. those lower leaves. Uh, it's yeah. Even if you add Epsom salts, those leaves will still look deficient and show the deficiency symptoms. But the additional uh, magnesium sulfate you applied will be prioritized to your new growth, which would be your, uh, your bud or your new developing shoot tip, uh, which is your economic por portion of the plant. Go ahead, Paul. And I'll, I'll jump in real quick if I can here and kind of highlight something um, that this paper shows. Um, and kind of going back to the figure that I referenced before where we had the two mature plants at 25 parts per million magnesium that were showing those deficiencies. I think it's important when you see a nutrient deficiency, a lot of times you tend to freak out. You know, it's like, oh no, something doesn't look right. My plant isn't totally beautiful and, you know, it, it doesn't look right. Well, understanding the life cycle of the plant and when that deficiency may start naturally occurring because of that reallocation can also kind of help you. Because, you know, if you're within the sweet spot for your operation, you've done your research and you've looked at your 50 parts per million, but you know that with your genetics and your setup, you're going to see some magnesium deficiency about four weeks in to, um, you know, bud set, it may be okay because that plant is just reallocating. And so if you're trying to correct that at that point, you may be throwing money away because if you know that the final product you're getting, even though you're seeing that magnesium deficiency in those leaves because it's relocating, um, you don't want to put more money into the system when you know that your cannabinoids and your bud is still going to be good at the end of, of the season there for you. So, you know, it's kind of like the, the classic, you're, you're driving by a cornfield in the fall and the plants look like crap because mm -hmm. they're dying and senescing. But that's actually a good thing because the plant has taken up all these resources and it's reallocating it to the sink. And you actually want to see, um, you know, that reallocation because it means that you've actually done your job you've dialed in your precise nutrients and you're reallocating what you've already given to the plant. Yeah, that's a good point that uh, you both brought up. And, and Patrick, especially, I want to highlight something you said for folks, and that's that um, it's important to, to know if a, if a nutrient is mobile or immobile. And if a nutrient is mobile, uh, then we're really focused on that new growth, the upper, uh, the upper portion of the plant. And... Um, not only are those leaves you know down at the bottom not ever going to look good again but uh that's okay and that doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to impact um, our overall plant health or the economic value of that plant so 
um, it's something we take for granted because people do, you know, like, like you said, Paul, people freak out when their plant uh, starts to show any issues at all. It's so funny because <laughs> I'll have people and they'll be like, oh, my plants finished so well, they looked great. And then they send me the photos and I'm like, oh my gosh, like how did this plant even survive? Um, it looks terrible. And then other people are like, oh man, I had a terrible run. And then they send me these plants and I'm like, dude, you crushed it. Like these look great. Like I would have been very, very happy with these results. So a lot of it is subjective in that regard. But I do think that we can, um, uh, we, we do need to look at mobile versus immobile nutrients and also um, just understand that that these are living organisms. They're not designed to look like um, what you see on social media all the time across your entire facility and all your plants. So that's a that's a very good point to make. Um, what else did we want to talk about in regards to magnesium? <laughs> did you guys have other things to highlight? I probably have a couple more questions, but I wanted to just kind of open the floor here and see um, what your thoughts were. Yeah, so one of the big things is kind of something we took away from this was making sure what your magnesium levels in your soil are to start off with. Um, we've looked at a handful of commercial substrates and some come in with a major pre-plant charge. Um, and very high magnesium at that. So understanding what's coming in in your substrate and then followed up by what's in your water. If you're on city water, this may not be a concern for you. Um, if you're on well water, this you may already have a significant amount of magnesium in your water source. Um, so as we start to play around with you know, what magnesium rate works for your operation, it's kind of taking all of these factors into effect and both looking at your substrate before you uh, utilize that in your operation, as well as water quality. Those impact a wide array of nutrients, just not magnesium, uh, but magnesium is heavily impacted by those two, is kind of what we've seen. That's one of the most common nutrients that come in in people's water and substrates. That's a good point. I wanted to add to that in the sense that um I think everyone should test their water. Everyone should test their soil and don't assume that the test that you receive from the municipal water company, from the uh, commercial soil producer is always accurate, especially because most of these potting soils like ours use a, a fraction of compost and that compost, as much as we want it to be consistent, it's, there's always room for variability and that can lead to, uh, you know, your overall potting soil having variability. So it's just something that people need to be aware of and account for. Um, interestingly enough, so I'm on a municipal water system in this house that I moved into here in Washington state. And I reached out to the water provider and what they do is they source from a, a, a number of wells to get a more consistent water supply. They only test for heavy metals. So when I asked them, you know, from a gardening perspective, like what kind of cations are coming in in my water, uh, they they said that those are all considered secondary um, elements in, in their eyes or variables, and they don't even test for it. So I had to send in my own test to find out, uh, you know, what levels of calcium and magnesium and sodium were in my water, which is, as you know, very important because um, we see we tend to see at least the, the water tests I see. The biggest issues I see um, are usually heavy metals and salinity, um, so sodium. Uh, I haven't seen super high magnesium water, but that's just 
I think the areas of the country that I've, I've happened to work with, but it's, it's absolutely a concern. So, um, <laughs> Paul, you're nodding your head too. Do you want to add anything to that? Oh no, I'm just saying if you want to see some high calcium and magnesium, come come on over to Kentucky. I'll show you some uh, some test results. So with that limestone base, but yeah, no, you're absolutely spot on. It's not something that municipal uh, water facilities will often test, and also it can vary. So for example, here in Kentucky, um, you're just based on where your water is coming from and you know the the flow of the groundwater itself um, you can have variability over you know weeks or months so you know you may dial in and then test your water three months later and your calcium and your magnesium could be completely different and so that can um, impact your acidification so yeah test early test often yeah and for those of you that are in uh soilless potting soils or um, living soils, making your own soil, um, I tend to not even add a magnesium uh, input. Like I don't, I don't like to necessarily use um, dolomite lime. I don't use uh, sulpomeg, kmeg, whatever you call it. There's a lot of um, inputs. I mean, you'll get a little bit of magnesium from a lot of different organic soil amendments um, already. And just with the compost fraction, you probably have some level of magnesium sufficiency just based on this, the number of soil tests I've seen. Um, and again, it, since it's it's probably the easiest organic supplement to add, you know, since we do have access to uh, magnesium sulfate or Epsom salt, um, it's just it, it's soluble. It's it, it's just it's really easy. So I, it's something that I feel like I can always add to my soil, but I, it's much harder to subtract. So I just want to throw that out as sort of an overview for people that are uh, like myself, you know, more on the organic living soil side of things. Um, well, guys, uh, I, I feel like we've really covered magne <laughs> magnesium quite a bit. Um, do you have anything else to add on magnesium or do you have any future uh, research that you're excited about right now that you're working on or, or what are even just your future plans professionally for, for both of you guys? Um, um, Patrick, you want to start us off? Yeah, uh, I'll lead into it. Um, you know, hemp, hemp work-wise, uh, been playing around with some other nutrient work, um, looking at micronutrient uptake, looking at uh, some amendments to soilless substrates, um, and then playing around with some different aggregates and looking at substrate ratios. Um, it's kind of the direction that I'm playing around with right this moment. Um, and that's been, it's been very interesting. Uh, hopefully looking to build off that more in 2023 um, and take that research we've done and take it to the next level. Um, but then it's just all been soilless media and looking at different blends for me. Uh, starting to move more into uh, how to make good soilless substrate and look at how to be more renewable with it. Um, it's kind of the direction that I've been heading for the 2023. Um, and then I know Paul's been looking at a lot of different hemp things as well. Well, uh, before we, we go over to Paul, um, Patrick, if you ever want to look into uh, living soils and, and re-amending the soils and treating them like an agricultural commodity uh, from a sustainability perspective, I think it's, it's really exciting. 
Um, from a science perspective, I think it's really interesting, but it's a little bit more challenging, especially on the IPM side, as, as I'm sure you guys know. Um, I wanted to ask you what substrates uh, you're experimenting with right now, because from a sustainability perspective, I would love to eventually move away from cocoa core and peat moss as, as sort of the dominant media options in our industry, um, at least on the organic side. Um, obviously, rock wool is horrible environmentally. Um, is there anything there? Because I've, I've looked into a few different medias uh, option or substrate options, and I haven't found anything that will perform anywhere near the levels of what I can get from, from peat moss right now. I'm still using peat moss as my base. Um, an individual you may want to look into his research be uh, Dr. Brian Jackson with NC State. He's done a lot of work with wood fiber. Um, so he's mm. looking at using pine trees to completely replace um, peat and all the other aggregates. And they have looked at uh, a lot of different peat blends and other wood blends um, in order to try and dial that in. He has done some work with hemp. Paul could probably make a little bit better comment on his hemp work. Um, but he does a lot of wood fiber as an alternative substrate to completely replace peat. Um, but that's probably the most prominent one that I've heard of, completely alternative to corn peat. I, I've looked into that a bit. Um, I've been a bit stymied either on uh, price or on, um, I, I guess, growth metrics. But I, I haven't given up hope. I, I feel like there's something... There's something there, <laughs> but um, yeah, I would love to. I would love to talk to him down the road. I think you guys in, did an introduction, so I need to follow up on those emails and see if I can keep pestering him to get him on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, how about you, Paul? Yeah. Well, I'll go into uh, my future here in just a sec. I wanted to make one comment that um, I think part of the reason why. Um, Coca Core and Pete have become a bit of an issue. Um, is kind of the the general a general theme in agriculture is we we tend to find one thing that works, and we tend to just mm -hmm. use it and use it and use it and use it and use it. And if you look at um, true sustainability, you know, like a diversified network, it's kind of like a good investment portfolio. You want to have a diversified portfolio. You want to have a diverse product. Um, and diverse products that you can build into um, the system. And, and that goes with pretty much anything, you know, fertilizers, substrates, etc. Um, and I think that really where a lot of the future research is going to have value is finding those things that won't completely replace something, but are going to help move us towards a diversified portfolio so that we start alleviating stress and start moving these industries to be more of a sustainable consumption. Um, you know, and obviously moving more and more towards as sustainable as we can get. Um, but just wanted to add that as a so. So you're saying problem. even if we just added 20% wood fiber to our our, our substrate recipe, that's going to have a dramatic impact um, in a beneficial way towards our overall sustainability, even if we're not completely replacing Peter Core. 
I'm not a substrate <laughs> specialist, so but, I mean, you're you know, reducing. <laughs> I'll let Jackson come on here. I'll let Jackson come on here and answer that question. But yes, theoretically, from a conceptual thing, if you're even replacing just twenty percent, that's twenty yeah, percent yeah, more okay. that you're. Saving. That's that's fair. <laughs> you scientists are so so yeah. good about not speaking out of your lane. I love that. I'll never catch on something. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's why Jackson has so much value. Absolutely. You gotta get him on the so, podcast, right? what what's in the future for you? Um, are you getting close to uh, to graduating? Yeah. So right now, I'm slated to graduate fall of 2024 or okay. spring of 2025. Um, obviously, in the research world, nothing is ever a hardcore perfect set um, timeline. You know, you could have a bad year, you could have a crop failure, especially when you're doing field level stuff. Um, but as far as uh, for me, you know, like I said, focusing more on germination, establishment, rhizosphere um, metrics. So right now, really what we're doing heavily is looking at roots and trying to image those roots and figure out how root phenotypes and how they're actually growing to help us with rhizosphere management. Um, but um, as far as what I want to do for the future, um, you know, I, I love research. I've always been insatiably curious. Um, you know, and I love being able to take that research and not just have it be some sort of data that sits there, but actually turning it into a meaningful and applicable story for people um, and one that's actually going to help the industry and growers. So for, for my future, I don't know if that's industry, I don't know if it's academia, but I know that definitely that, that outreach um, with, with growers and with the industry and, and specifically research and development would definitely be an avenue that I'm, I'm that's the exciting thing about this crop right and I think that's the reason all of us are here is because we feel like there's so much more to learn and uh, we don't have all the answers um, like I think corn would be really boring now like the research has been done like we're on a new frontier here and I think that's so exciting um, yeah well and Grain and fiber too. I mean, I know that you know that's not your your focus necessarily mm -hmm. here, Tad. But like you know, don't don't underestimate the value that those could have as a as a launched commodity, um, as well. And again, it will just add more research dollars and, and more value to this industry in in all of its avenues and arenas. That would be an interesting topic because I don't really know a lot about the fiber side of things. Um, it just hasn't been a focus and I'd be curious to know where what opportunities exist in that industry as infrastructure for processing the fiber grows as demand for the fiber grows um, yeah I, I think that would be I think that would be really interesting so maybe that's a, a future podcast topic yeah. uh, all right so last maybe. question before we sign off have you guys done any work with biostimulants? So looking specifically at microbes and their role in uh, nutrient uptake in the rhizosphere, um, is that something either of you have a, a, an interest in or have done any research on or see future research? So as, as far as the work that was done at NC State, um, there, there, we did not look into um, biostimulants or, or bioadditives. Um, so that was some research that um, a few a few companies had expressed interest in, um, but it just you know sometimes the stars don't align um, as far as the the funding or um, follow through. So you know it's just 
it it's definitely an area that needs to be studied there's a wealth of knowledge out there that shows just how much value um, these these microbial communities can have not only to the plant but also to the network to you know the the rhizosphere to you know nutrient cycling nutrient availability and everything something that you know you live and breathe um tad uh, with you and your company and the excellent work that you guys do but uh who knows maybe uh future research. i i believe it's the future of agriculture in a lot of ways um as we hit peak phosphorus as we see limitations in supplies we need to figure out ways to better utilize the nutrients that are, and elements that are available and that's where i think um y- you know these microbes are so complex it's really daunting to try and study it um because they have a synergistic effect you can't just isolate one and expect to understand it fully and um, it's a bit of a um yeah it's it, it, it kind of hurts my brain to think about it or even begin to try and construct a a reasonable research study around it but i do think there's something there even if we can't fully understand it at this point so yeah yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, uh, I just want to thank both of you for your time today, for sharing your research, for doing this research, and the impact it has and benefits for growers, uh, you know, like myself that are always interested in learning more. So, I hope we can stay in touch and uh, continue to to share this information so growers can do a better job in their gardens. Wonderful. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for having us. We uh, we all only get better together. So the the work you do, Tad, and on the on the podcast and everything, it, it really really does make a difference. So thanks for having us back. That was Paul Coxon and Patrick Vesey, and you are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. If you like the podcast, please leave us a rating and review and give us a follow on Instagram. If you want to support the podcast, check out our new Patreon for some unique benefits or the wide range of products we offer on our website ranging from soils, amendments, beneficial insects, LED lights, soil test analysis, and consulting. You can also sign up for our newsletter on our website homepage to stay up to date on the latest research and information. Thanks for listening.